This week on Emerge Mobile First, a conversation with Dr. Natrajan, Chief Medical Officer at Seasons Hospice. And I love helping people by allowing that to scale. So I learned early in my career that I'm one of those relatively rare physicians that can inspire other physicians to be better or to improve their workday so they can get more done and serve more people. Welcome to Mobile First. You'll find bonus tools, expanded information, and key takeaways on our website, EmergeMobileFirst.com. For a quick and effective way to level up your mobile strategy, again, that's EmergeMobileFirst.com. Dr. Natrajan is a graduate of Northwestern University Medical School and has been the Chief Medical Officer of Seasons Hospice since 2005. He served in various capacities for Seasons from 2000 until 2005, including holding the position of Medical Director of the Illinois program. Board certified in internal medicine, hospice and palliative care, and sports medicine, Dr. Natrajan has authored book chapters and articles in peer-reviewed journals. He has also lectured across the United States and around the world, including at the annual meeting of the American College of Physicians. He won the Scripps Howard National Spelling Bee in 1985. Dr. Natrajan, thank you for joining us. I'm really excited to have you here. My pleasure. So what I like to do at the start here is jump into the origin story. So before diving into the insights, I'd like to spend just a little time understanding your perspective and what makes you tick. Because I think this really helps me better understand your point of view when digging in deeper throughout this episode. So, you know, for example, what shapes my perspective is I'm really passionate about learning how and why things work. And even back to my childhood, like I mentioned before, I pursued pre-med to solve problems and make an impact and help people. But I found that I wanted to help more people. And that's where I was introduced to technology and understanding how I can make this impact at scale and solve these problems at scale. So that's really what I'm passionate about in my profession. So what are you most passionate about in your profession and why? I love helping people and I love helping people by allowing that to scale. So I learned early in my career that I'm one of those relatively rare physicians that can inspire other physicians to be better or to improve their workday so they can get more done and serve more people. And so I've been in a national role here at Seasons Hospice now for 12 years, and it allows me, instead of seeing eight patients a day or 20 patients a day, I'm able to support 4,700 patients a day through a hundred or a couple of hundred physicians and nurse practitioners and a bunch of nurses, social workers, chaplains, music therapists, hospice aides, and a, a number of team members that work together to help this large group of people who are going through the dying process. So what originally shaped that for you? You know, I can't imagine as a 10-year-old just sitting there thinking about, I'm going to impact, you know, 47,000 physicians or patients. What along the journey helped you get to this point? Well, I actually, interestingly enough, loved technology as I was growing up. And I thought that I would be doing computer work or software work. And then I went to a science expo when I was 16, and there were a number of people there. There were nuclear physicists, there were various scientists who were presenting. And then in one of the sessions was a cardiologist from Loyola Hospital here in Chicago. And he talked about the artificial heart, and then he passed around a Jarvik 7 artificial heart. And the people just passed it, you know, from one person to the next. 
and I held this thing in my hand and I said, my goodness, like if modern science can do this, I want to be in on it. And uh, then it uh, came home and told my parents and, uh, and the rest is really history. My dad, I think, was waiting for that day. He always believed that I would be I could be a good physician. And so I came back from school a couple of days later and he had called every hospital in town, put me on the list to candy stripe there and found out information about colleges and med schools. And he, he wasted no time. I think it was just waiting for me to green light something that I didn't even realize was something he really had seen in me. So, and I actually was enrolled in a combined bachelor's med school program at Northwestern, which allowed me, as long as I maintained grades, to be guaranteed admission to med school. So while it wasn't when I was 10, uh, I really have had this desire to serve people in need in healthcare uh, since the age of 16. Well, it's really cool how you can actually pinpoint the aha, aha moment back to that one moment when you were 16 at that expo. So that's really cool. And then to have also that support in your dad all the way through, did he, was he a physician as well? Or are you kind of the first family physician? Fortunately are still with us. They did accounting. My dad was a CPA and they started a CPA firm 30 years ago. And while they're kind of backing down or weaning a lot of the work, they actually are still serving clients today. Hmm. Wow. Yeah. It's much like I can relate. My parents are the same. They're going to they love the grind and they're going to be working till the day they die because they love <laughs> helping people. Now I see how you get into the medical field, but then can you talk about the journey you took now in the medical field to get to Seasons Hospice? What drew you to Seasons Hospice? Yeah, it's actually a somewhat circuitous, almost accidental journey to hospice. So I did uh, training, internal medicine residency training. And at the end of that training, I did a fellowship in, for one year in sports medicine. And so there's no surgery involved. It's treating athletes and doing soft tissue injury uh, support work, being on the sidelines of games, et cetera. But I needed a job for a year because I knew my wife was going to be going somewhere for school. And so I didn't want to join a practice and then leave that practice high and dry. And so I became a hospitalist for a year, taking care of hospitalized inpatients. This was in the year 2000, and what is true today was true back then, which is if you're taking care of hospitalized patients, a number of them uh, are actually terminal. Whatever the disease, it might be something as obviously terminal as an advanced cancer, but it might be something that isn't less, uh, that isn't as obviously terminal, like heart failure or advanced Alzheimer's disease. And so I found myself referring patients to hospice for end-of-life care, knowing that they had less than six months to live. And as I did that a little bit, one of the nurses approached me and said, hey, you know, we're one of the community hospices. We need a team meeting covered. Do you think you can help out? And so really with no training whatsoever, other than a couple of lectures in residency, I showed up at team meeting as the doc uh, in November of 2000. And I guess I did okay because they asked me to come back. And then uh, over 17 years, I have evolved from that one office team role to the national position that we have today. So is there something even bigger? Because it sounds like that you're kind of motivated to help as many people as possible. Do you feel that you're kind of at that pinnacle to be able to help all the people that you want in your lifetime? Or is there a next step? Well, I think that as time goes on, 
there are always more people who can be impacted, right? And, and there mm-hmm. are various ways that that can happen. So one way is that 4,700 patients a day can turn into 6,000 and 8,000 and 10,000 patients, but that may or may not happen. Another way can be through collaboration, right? I now sit on the Hospice Medical Director Certification Board Exam Writing Committee. I do presentations at national conferences. I, I sit on the public policy committee of the National Hospice Palliative Care Organization. So there are various other ways where I can assist how care is delivered, how policy is made. And in that regard, then I am helping other hospice patients in other communities that never, ever see the Seasons Hospice logo. But I know that in some small way, I'm uh, influencing at least maintaining access to the Medicare hospice benefit through the dying process. And you mentioned earlier just your fascination with technology and how you see that as part of your passion, how you see that intersecting the medical industry and being able to impact at scale. And so I'm definitely interested to dig into that a little bit with you here in a little bit. Maybe before jumping into that and, and how Seasons Hospice is, is dealing with that, maybe for those of us who don't know, can you give us a quick description of who you guys are and what you do? Sure. So we are a hospice based in Chicago, Illinois. We just celebrated 20 years. We are a joint commission and Medicare certified hospice. And as such, we follow all the rules associated with being a Medicare accredited hospice. Our job is to take care of those patients who two physicians have certified has a life expectancy of six months or less. And we have the team members I mentioned earlier, the physician, the nurse, the chaplain, the social worker, the aides, the volunteers, all those as mandated by Medicare. And we also have music therapists. We are actually the largest employer of music therapists of any employer, hospice or otherwise across the country. We have a foundation that helps support uh, our patients' non-medical needs. We are very into education, and so we teach medical residents, medical fellows, interns in social work, music therapy interns. So we try our very best to serve the communities, and the communities we serve are generally urban and suburban markets. We have not launched into rural markets at this point, but we serve 4,700 patients a day in 29 cities from coast to coast. Wow. That's kind of a crazy environment to work in, right? With terminal ill patients most of the time. How does that impact your day-to-day? It takes a lot of perspective to be able to keep doing it. And particularly for our bedside caregivers, uh, there's a high risk of burnout. There's a high risk of compassion fatigue. I'm not at the bedside every day with our dying patients. So that is both good and bad. It helps me not get burned out, but it also makes it a little bit harder to maintain perspective similar to those who are at the bedside every single day. But one of the things that we as an organization have focused on is constantly keeping our mission, our vision, and our values front and center. And we actually sent several of our leaders, I won't even say several, we sent probably about 40 of our leaders to the Disney Healthcare Institute in 2013 and 2014 to spend extra time as we were getting bigger and busier, making sure that we were always taking steps, maintaining that focus on mission, vision, and values, not just for us, but for all of our staff. 
And so talking about the staff and kind of how you're organized, maybe to, re- to be able to really dig in and understand Seasons Hospice, can you maybe explain how these internal teams are organized and maybe so how we can get a sense of how they work together and how you know the information and data flows across the organization? Sure. So we have a, a single kind of back office hub, and that is in Rosemont, Illinois, just a few minutes away from O'Hare Airport. And then we have 29 locations, and each of those locations has a lot going on. They've got an executive director, a clinical director, uh, a medical director, a director of business operations, staff who are responsible for community outreach. And then that leadership team oversees the clinical teams. And every single clinical team has that interdisciplinary group of folks, the doctor, the nurse, the chaplain, the social worker, the music therapist, the volunteers, and the aides. And so the responsibility of each leadership team is to make sure that each one of those care teams that typically will take care of anywhere, essentially up to 100 patients, the leadership team has to make sure that that interdisciplinary team is resourced and empowered to get done what they need to get done. And then our job and Rosemont is to make sure that all 29 of those leadership teams and all almost 3,000 of our staff have what they need to be able to support our patients and families. And that could include opening inpatient centers for the most severely ill patients. That could include making sure that you know we have additional sites just to be able to get supplies if somebody's geography spans 50 or 60 miles. That could certainly include getting technology so that our folks who are out in the field don't have to get to a wired spot to document their notes. Being able to do documentation at the bedside is one of the biggest things that we've made a commitment to over the last couple of years. And so I guess as then the chief medical officer, where do you kind of fit into that whole scheme of things and and what are you currently focused on? So on the org chart, my responsibility is for the patient experience. So okay. uh, I have all the doctors, but I also have uh, all of nursing and then I have education, quality and supportive care. And so ultimately, the employee experience is not mine exclusively, but the patient experience is the responsibility of of my teams. So uh, it's quite a bit uh, and mm-hmm. it's something that my team members and I take incredibly seriously. And so you'd mentioned you've been able to really improve the documentation bedside, and that obviously goes with patient experience, being able to have the information to relay it to you know the best care. And then also that you mentioned education. So with, with some of these, these core things you're focusing on, is there one that's really standing out that's bubbled to the top given what's happening in the environment right now? Yeah, I think the challenge really is, and we haven't figured out all the resources yet, but we certainly do have ideas around how to achieve it. You know, when you're taking care of 4,700 patients, not all 4,700 patients need us at this moment, right? Mm-hmm. but 1,200 might. And so the trick is, how are we there for the 1,000 or the 1,200 or the, or the 1,500 that need us right at this moment? Or maybe it's only 500 who need us at this moment. How do we get the right person to the right patient at the right time? And how do we do that with a backdrop of short length of stay? So in other words, across the country, not just at seasons, but nationwide, one third of all patients who go on to hospice die on hospice within seven days. And that, so that means that these patients who are coming on are, are very, very close to death's door in a 
notable percentage of cases. So how do we serve those who are acutely in need, who just came onto the program, and get to them while also getting to the people that we've been taking care of for five months who now suddenly need us? There are some ways to predict that, but there are some times when unpredictable things happen. And so that is really kind of the sweet spot. If you can figure out how to get the right person to the right patient at the right time, and then consistently communicate what's happening and what's about to happen. That is really kind of where we would capture the essence of the promise we make to our patients and families. That's not an easy thing to do, but I think that technology can and does have a huge impact on the ability to do that. Man, this is really complex and something that I haven't really had this perspective of. And so really, it sounds like there's, it's kind of like a logistical problem because can't really view it as assets because you have, you know, a limited number of physicians that each have a specialty and then you have patients that are each unique in what they're dealing with. And so it's not necessarily a one-to-one. Sometimes physician might have to hit up a couple different patients because they're the right fit. So yeah, to coordinate that, I can understand just that level of complexity. And then with all the emotion and human element involved, that's the whole next level. So I guess what technologies and things are you focusing on to support? The thing with hospices, the doctors see a number of them, but in the kind of when they're most, when patients are most at need, usually who they need is a nurse. Sometimes they need a social worker, sometimes they need a chaplain, sometimes they need a doctor, but the care manager or the case manager is typically a nurse. And it's a nurse who we try to dispatch to them. The doctor should be going to establish a plan of care, but we have, you know, a doctor for every. 50 patients or every 100 patients. We have a nurse for every eight patients, right? So we have a lot more of them. And these patients are largely in their homes or in facilities. So, you know, we have to go to them. They're not under our watch as in a hospital for the most part. There are a few that are in, you know, our facilities depending on whether they meet certain criteria. So the trick is, yes, getting that nurse or that doc to them as needed. And so one of the ways that could really make a difference. One is, you know, acuity scales. So as we get phone calls overnight, labeling a, a patient as a high, high need, high acuity. Another could be patient perception, right? So we're seeing that there are lots of telemedicine or telehealth devices out there, not in hospice, but for heart failure patients, for example. So it might be a monitor that then triggers a, a central hub that their weight is going up or that their blood pressure is going up, right? And it might trigger that someone has to get involved to try and bring that pressure down before that patient winds up needing hospital access. Similarly, it would be great to have technology where patients and families can essentially label that they're not feeling good or they're not feeling supported. And so if we could then have tools, which we are trying to either develop or find, that take all of those triages, right? And essentially take, okay, among the 4,700 patients, who are the ones most in need? And then be able to prioritize and overlay geography. It would be a lot easier from a logistics perspective to get the right person to the right time where they belong. And it's not, it's not unlike some of the technology being used for Waze or Google Maps or Uber. It's a mm-hmm. huge matrix. You highlighted a, a couple of really cool experiences. And I think that last one is a really big one because then you have really the, the self-managed patient tracking, which then is then integrating with maybe some back end 
logistical, more employee focused internal solution. And right. which is very similar to the Uber experience, right? You have the driver experience and then you have the rider experience and then you have the whole back office experience that enables the whole thing. And so of these really cool ideas and all of these can add an immense value to people's lives, you know, what is that core technology that you're currently primarily focused on? Well, so I mean, right now, you know, we're using things like Skype for business. We use Adobe virtual classrooms that allows us to be in touch with our staff and, and teach a lot of the things. We're starting to use Skype for business for some uh, televisits. So if a nurse or a social worker is at a bedside and they want a doc to see something, they can use Skype for business, which is HIPAA compliant, you know, to kind of get that doc to essentially teleport in. We're trying to use that partly for even throughput. So right now, if a patient is being referred from a facility or from a hospital, and we want that patient to go to one of our inpatient centers, we don't get a chance to lay eyes on them. Well, what if we could have our doc lay eyes on them using some of those telemedicine tools? It makes it a lot easier. And sounds instead of sending a nurse to go see them, assess them, make sure they meet criteria for inpatient level of care, you know, if we could save that four hours by using some of these tools, which is what we're kind of on the ground floor of building, that patient suffers less. The healthcare system is much happier because that patient moves out of the acute care hospital into where they belong. And maybe that means we get them in the middle of the day as opposed to the middle of the night, which means all parties are much happier. Mm -hmm. Interesting. So, I mean, it sounds like your, your entire technology focus is mobile, whether it's you know, not necessarily through the traditional mobile device, but essentially the service being offered is mobile. You have people that are in their home. You have doctors that are traveling all over to be mobile to then help them on site. So I guess with, with all of this mobile happening, contextual service being offered and different technologies at place, you know, what is kind of the challenge that you're currently faced with implementing some of this telemedicine technology? Connectivity is probably the hardest. And then just rules and regulations around what qualifies as a, as a visit and what doesn't. There, there's not a lot of clarity from a HIPAA perspective. And the technology is still, it's kind of young. So being able to connect easily and see without drops, right? And then mm -hmm. how do you document it? And what do you document and what counts? And what's the liability associated with it if you can't see perfectly in 3D what you would have been able to if you were there. I mean, there are, just a, there are a lot of challenges, logistical as well as technical and legal, that come with all of these new opportunities. It's no different from what we're seeing across the world outside of healthcare as technology evolves. You know, given all the different ideas that we've talked about and all the things that, that you're experiencing on the front line, and then also just with your fascination of technology, is there anything that you're really excited about that's starting to peek its head that's coming maybe in the medical field? I equate it to, right, if I go to a hotel and I get the, hey, how's your stay so far on a scale of one to 10, right? And mm -hmm. if I say it's anything less than a nine or a 10, right, I get a phone call or I get a text back saying, what can we do to make it better, right? I think that that is really where this needs to head. Right now, people are still, you know, they're calling when they need something. But I think that more and more 
maybe not the patients themselves who are going through the dying process, but certainly their kids or their grandkids, they're used to picking up their Android or their iPhone and letting someone know with no punctuation that they're either happy or they're not happy. And our technology needs to catch up to that mindset. And so if people can convey that they don't feel that their loved one is comfortable or they don't feel communicated with, and they can convey that in a language that works for them, then I'll be much more likely to know that I have to dispatch someone or at least get someone to call that person sooner rather than later. For us, it's particularly important because we get a chance to do this end-of-life experience once. That's it. There's no taking it back. And so along the way, if anyone is feeling anything less than supported, we need to know as soon as possible so that we can change that. So Dr. Natrajan, what's the coolest thing you're working on right now that you want everyone to check out? I don't know that there's anything that cool except that we are doing a lot nationwide using Adobe Classrooms. And that doesn't seem like much, but when we've got uh, staff all over the country and they could potentially be islands, but we can actually get them in a class together, learning from one another and teaching one another, we can do that on a weekly basis for each discipline. It's pretty amazing. I think of us among our doctors as having a virtual medical staff of uh, over 200 doctors and nurse practitioners, and any one of them can connect with any of the others if they have a a patient situation that they need help with. And we're essentially doing that with all of our disciplines. That combined fund of knowledge and that interactive collective growth doesn't necessarily sound like much, but I think that's the most exciting thing to be able to bring people together and get them to collectively elevate is really awesome to me. And just with the things that we've talked about, they're pretty progressive ideas and all of the things are possible. So where should we go to keep tabs on your work and and the progress of it? I think you can go to our website at uh, seasons.org. That would be a good place to start. We've got, at this point, not the mobile app that we want, but we are working on that. And hopefully as that is out, there will be a lot more ability to follow what we do. Great. And we'll definitely keep tabs on that and I'll I'll, uh, keep up to date with you. We'll make sure that that's updated into our show notes section. And so everyone, there you have it. Make sure to go check out seasons.org to keep an eye on Dr. Natrogen's work. And also make sure to turn in this Friday for a rapid fire round where Dr. Natrogen will be sharing some of his most valuable resources. Well, Dr. Natrogen, you know, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today and really explain a little bit about what Season Hospice has going on and what you're fascinated about and really dig into some of the cool things that you're working on. We really appreciate taking the time. Thank you. Hey, thank you for listening. Make sure to tune in this Friday for this week's guest resources from our rapid fire question round. And I'm always happy to be a resource in any way that I can. So visit emergemobilefirst.com to reach out to me directly or for additional insights, resources, and bonus tools that can help catapult your organization to the next level. Until next time, think mobile first. Mobile first.